6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, an introduction. Well, we're going to enter the Word of God, and we never want to do that uh, without prayer. This is not an intellectual experience, it's a spiritual experience. So let's, let's solicit the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you for the privilege that you've extended to us to be gathered together here to study your word. And Father, we recognize that in your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. And we would seek, Father, that your purpose be accomplished in each of our lives as we go forth. So we thank you, Father, for the privilege. We ask you to be among us, be with us that your Holy Spirit might open our hearts and lives to your word as we commit this coming time and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're gathered to explore one of the most remarkable books of the Bible, the Epistle to the Colossians. Now, this particular epistle has a number of unique and compelling features. First of all, it's regarded by many scholars as the most elevated view in the entire Bible. That's quite a statement. Quite a statement. The other thing, it also, you'll discover, uniquely focuses on advice and counsel that are unique to our day today. That may sound strange, that Paul, writing so long ago, was as relevant as he'll turn out to be for you and I today. And uh, I'd like to mention, this may seem like a strange way to open up, but my wife and I have just finished a book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. And it's really, it's not about Colossians, but it's intended to be an overcomer's handbook. And it's, it is, with it is associated a number of other studies. Origin of evil, eternal security, thy kingdom come. Most people have no idea when they pray that what they're praying for. And uh, the whole difference between, you know, about inheritance rewards, that sort of thing. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this, though, is because we've had the privilege in having this book go to press a few weeks ago to have a foreword written by the uh, founder of the ISV, International Standard Version Bible, who's a good friend, but he wrote a foreword. And I was startled with the forward that he submitted that's in the book, because it has relevance to what we're doing today. I want you to just bear with me as I share with you this forward that William Welty wrote for us. He starts out by pointing out that John, the Apostle John, John must have been puzzled. He was exiled to the lonely island of Patmos, and he's just begun to receive what will become known as the most elevated vision of things to come given any person in the history of the planet Earth. 
The vision begins with a resurrected immortal Jesus of Nazareth dictating seven letters for delivery to the pastors of seven churches that existed during the latter half of the first century. And with eyes of flames like fire and feet like bronze that glows like a furnace, the God-man who once was dead and is now alive forevermore is ill. Bluntly speaking, the immortal man is about ready to vomit. How can it be that an immortal being can apparently become so unwell as to puke? Call the dictated letter eschatological symbolism, if you will. Label it literary allegory. Or classify it as an apocalyptic literature influenced by Jewish visions of the end of the world from the time between the Old New Testaments. You can even think of the story as mere literary license. It really doesn't matter what name we use to describe the event, because the reality of the letter to the church of Laodicea is that Jesus is sick of lukewarm Christianity. That's the essence of it. He's about to vomit, as writes the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, going to 17. And this is from the International Standard Version. It says, to the messenger of the church of Laodicea write, the Amen, the witness who is faithful and true, the originator of God's creation, says this, I know your actions, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Since you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. That's strange language for the Son of God to use, isn't it? You say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I don't need anything. Yet you don't realize that you are miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Bluntly speaking, Jesus of Nazareth is sick of the lukewarm, useless Christian lifestyles, but he doesn't leave the Laodicean pastor without a solution to the problem. He continues, Therefore I advise you to buy from me gold purified in fire so that you may be rich, white clothes to wear so that your shameful nakedness won't show, and ointment to put on your eyes so you may see. I correct and discipline those whom I love, so be serious and repent. Look, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone listens to my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place to sit with me on my throne, just as I have conquered and have sat down with my father on his throne. Let everyone listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all an excerpt, of course, of the International Standard Version. But William continues, he says, As I write the words of this foreword on a rainy, blustery, wintry day in early 2009 here in Southern California, the United States of America and the world in which it exists is entering the most terrifying time in history. The economies of virtually every nation on the earth are collapsing. Unwise American politicians are creating dollars out of thin air, voting into existence more than a trillion dollars merely by agreeing to loan them to businesses that would otherwise have been reorganized through the discipline of bankruptcy, courts, and free enterprise business realities. Meanwhile, the whole Western world that only six months ago was saying, I am rich and I have become wealthy, I don't need anything is now about to find out from personal experience what it will mean to hear the third horseman of the apocalypse cry out, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. All of this trouble comes on the world from a God who loves us and who corrects and disciplines those whom he loves. 
And that's why this message is going to be your roadmap through the times of trouble that are about to refine God's children and judge all of God's enemies. The counsel contained in this remarkable volume will explain what the life of faith is intended by its author to lead to, which is divinely ordered preparation for the rulership in the coming kingdom. May these readers learn to be firmly entrenched overcomers who have no need for exhortation. May we not be the cowardly ones who bury their talents in the ground, wrongly convinced that the God whom we serve reaps where he doesn't sow. Meanwhile, the ancient words of a centuries-old poem haunt me. They're carved in a Gothic medieval alphabet on a towering, ornate cathedral door right in the heart of a small town in Germany. And translated into modern English, the words take the form of a frightening poem. Here is what the poem says. You call me eternal, and then do not seek me. You call me fair, and then do not love me. You call me gracious, and then do not trust me. You call me just, and then do not fear me. You call me life, and then do not choose me. You call me light, and do not see me. You call me Lord, and then do not respect me. You call me master, and then do not obey me. You call me merciful, and do not thank me. You call me mighty, and then do not honor me. You call me noble, and then do not serve me. You call me rich, then do not ask me. You call me savior, then do not praise me. You call me shepherd, then do not follow me. You call me the way, and then do not walk with me. You call me wise, and then do not heed me. You call me son of God, and then do not worship me. When I condemn you, then do not blame me. Woo, huh? May we allow, the God, allow God to carry us on to maturity and fitness for ruling as kings and queens in the coming kingdom as we rightly respond to the circumstances and adversities of this present life, which are not worthy to be compared to the glories which will one day be revealed in us. And that, of course, is William Welty's forward, uh, written a, about a few months ago. He's, of course, drawing upon an analogy that we want to draw upon in our study of Colossians. The seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the things which are, they were in existence at that time. You ever wonder why God chose those particular seven churches to be representative? Um, each letter has a con concluding phrase. I'm switching to the King James, which I'm more familiar with, obviously. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that closes each of the seven letters. There are a number of applications. Obviously, these were existing local churches at that time. That was corroborated through archaeological research. But it's also intended to be admonitory to all churches. He, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So each letter is to all churches, even though there's seven representative churches being used here. It says, he that hath an ear. How many of you have an ear? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, that's most of us. Okay, good. He that hath an ear, let him hear. This is written to every one of us. So there's a personal level. See, there's different levels under understanding. Local? Sure. Admonitory to all churches in a broad sense? Sure. Homiletic, that is personal. The surprising one is the fourth one. That's the prophetic application. These seven churches turn out, once you understand the letters, to lay out seven eras, consecutive historical eras of the church throughout the last several thousand years. 
And that's, if they were in any other order, that wouldn't be true, by the way. And the, it turns out everything about each letter is relevant to the, its purpose. The actual name of the church turns out to be relevant to its major theme. The title that Jesus uses of himself in each of those letters is relevant. Each letter has some, a commendation, some concerns, and an exhortation. In other words, some, it's like a report card, some good news and some bad news. And uh, then they have a closing phrase that he that hath in your let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now what's interesting is there are two churches that have no commendation. Two of the seven have nothing good said about them. And Laodicea is one of those. That should give us pause. Um, there are two churches that have nothing bad said about them. And that's worthy of our study, of course, too. But we won't get into all that here. But what's interesting, if you're very diligent, you know, God always rewards the diligent. And if you look at these letters carefully, you'll notice that the promise to the overcomer in the first three letters are an appendix, like a PS, at the end of the letter. But in the last four, the, the, the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter. Why is that? Well, if nothing else, it's cluing us that the first three and the last four are somehow distinctive in some way. And we will explore that a little bit. Now, if we take those seven letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, we discover by examination that they're represent of the apostolic church, the first century, the persecuted church, the married church, where the church marries the world, the medieval church, the denominational churches that followed out of the Reformation, the missionary church, and finally, the apostate church. And that's going to be our focus in the letter to Colossians, which is one reason I want to give you this background. Now, the first three we know are distinctive. Those have the promises of the overcomer postscripted as sort of an afterthought, in a sense. The last four have them in the body of the letter. And we also notice the last four include uniquely an explicit reference to the second coming of Christ. So that's kind of provocative. We also know that the first of those last four has an explicit promise that if they don't repent, they're going to go through the Great Tribulation. Which means if they do, and the others won't. Interesting. One of them has an explicit promise that it'll be removed from the, even the time of that trouble. And the other two are probably problematic. Now, the one we're interested in as we approach the epistle to Colossians is Laodicea, and you'll see why, because Laodicea is expressly addressed within the text. They're to exchange letters, the two of them. In fact, it's interesting, the seven letters of seven churches that Jesus wrote, when somebody says, how many letters are in the New Testament? You say, 21. No, there's 28. Everybody overlooks the seven letters Jesus wrote in Revelation 2 and 3. Well, it's interesting, in Paul's epistles, he wrote Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, so forth, 10 different addressees. But three of those addressees are pastors. That means that seven churches Paul wrote. Now, when you start, now, Paul was not a mystic. John was, but Paul wasn't. He's a practical guy putting out practical for practical churches. And yet we discover the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit all over this thing because the seven letters that Jesus writes to Ephesians, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Paul wrote Ephesus, Ephesians, same one. Is there a letter that speaks of joy through suffering? That the Smyrna letter, sir, the letter to Philippians. Is there a letter that was written regarding marriage to the world? Yeah, the Corinthians. To be a Corinthians is to be a fornicator. That, that term was used. He was a Corinthian. 
Thyatira and Galatians linked together. Sardis and Romans. Philadelphia is the, the uh, eschatological of the churches. And Thessalonians, of course, is the eschatological letter of the group. And interestingly enough, the one that corresponds to Laodicea is Colossians. In fact, they're only a mile apart, or so, roughly a mile apart. And they're, they're instructed to exchange letters. So we're going to discover the reason I've gone through this background before we get into the letter itself to give you uh, uh, a sense of why this is so relevant to us today. And uh, that'll emerge very clearly as we get into the letter specifically. So we're going to be looking at Colossians and Laodicea together as we go through the study. A couple other questions to be pondering. We're going to devote this first session to just to getting prepared to jump into this letter. But uh, do heavenly bodies have any influence over our lives? That sounds like a strange question. Millions of people feel that way. Out of 1,750 newspapers, over 1,220 carry astrological columns. A lot of people may not admit it, but they watch those and they take, some people take them very seriously. Another question, is there any relationship between diet and spiritual living? Diet and spiritual living. I'm not talking about diet from a nutritional or hygienic point of view, but from a spiritual point of view. A lot of people have very strong feelings about that. Another question, does God speak to us immediately in our minds or only through His Word? These are questions that if we had an open discussion, many people have very different views on this. Another question, do Eastern religions have anything to offer the evangelical Christian? We're going to be confronting these and similar issues all through this epistle. You're going to be startled to discover how relevant Paul's concerns are to us in our everyday lives today. And so these very contemporary questions are the very issues that Paul is going to deal with in his, this magnificent epistle. There are many Bible scholars that have concluded that Colossians is the most profound letter that Paul ever wrote. Paul was probably the greatest mind that we ever have encountered. And uh, so unless we depend on the Holy Spirit to teach us, we're going to miss these truths that are in here. Now, the occasion of the epistle deserves some comment. The Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul about A.D. 60 to 62, while he was imprisoned in Rome. It's astonishing to realize that this letter of encouragement and insight was written, you could almost hear the clank of the chains around his wrists as he's writing this thing, so to speak. Um, he's a prisoner in Rome all this time. And one purpose of the letter, of course, is to clear up the heresies and, uh, that had sprung up uh, in the area of Colossae. And that was one of three cities in the Lycus Valley. Uh, it's about 125 miles from Ephesus, southeast from Ephesus, in the province of uh, Asia Minor. When we say Asia, we mean the Roman province of Asia Minor. You and I would know it today as Turkey, if you will, roughly. And uh, the name of Colossians probably, we're not sure, but possibly derived from Colossus, a large and giant statue straddling the harbor. Uh, that's at least in legend. And uh, uh, it's about 12 miles from Heropolis and Laodicea, the other two cities of the valley. So... This was a meeting point for East and West, one of the major uh, trade routes, and, and as such was naturally a very fertile ground for religious speculations and heresies and exchange of ideas. And uh, there are several references in the letter that seem to indicate that Paul himself had not actually visited the city. And uh, the church there was an outgrowth 
of three years that Paul spent in Ephesus. He spent three years 125 miles away, and some of his converts are the prominent people in Colossians. So he's aware of it secondhand. So effective was the witness of the church at Ephesus that, quote, as it says in the book of Acts, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus from Ephesus. Now, what a wonderful appellation that would be for a city. And so, but specifically two men, Epaphras and Philemon, who were in Ephesus, seem to have been the ones primarily responsible to establish the founding a church in Colossae. And Epaphras evidently carried the thrilling news to the, back to his family in, in Colossae and started a church there. And Philemon had a, a, a church meeting in his home. It's interesting to realize, by the way, that almost everything you read in the New Testament occurred in homes. The first century church was a ho- church in the homes. That, and that's why our materials on that speak of the once and future church. They started in the homes, and we believe it's going to end in the homes as we get into increased persecution and so forth. And it's likely that uh, Apaphia and uh, Archippus were uh, respectively the wife and son of Philemon, and uh, Archippus was probably the pastor of the church. But those are inferences we, we draw. And uh, the church in Colossae was primarily, primarily a Gentile church, about five years old when Paul wrote his letter, and uh, he was at the time a prisoner, as I say. He, may, he had met a runaway slave named Onesimus who belonged to Philemon, one of the leaders of the church at Colossae. This was Slave ran away, became converted. Paul sends him back and uh, that, uh, uh, admonishes uh, Philemon to take him back as a friend, not as a slave, as a brother in Christ. And, and one of the most charming letters is the little letter of Philemon that accompanies all these letters about this time. And so it's about the same time that Paphras shows up uh, in Rome because he needed Paul's help. So it's his solicitation of Paul's help that results in the letter that he solicits from Paul to Colossae that we're going to be studying here. And uh, according to Epaphras' report, that some new doctrines are being taught in Colossae and we're invading the church and creating problems. And uh, that's to have a church is to have problems, right? And uh, the epistle itself uh, seems due to the arrival of Epaphras from Colossae, what precipitates all this. And he was, of course, one of Paul's converts and so on. And uh, he had remained with Paul in Rome, and uh, Onesimus and Tychicus carries these epistles to the destinations. The letter to Ephesus was sent to Ephesus, Colossians to Colossians, and of course the note uh, about Onesimus to Philemon. There's a reference made to a letter to Laodicea, and some scholars suspect that what we call the letter to Ephesus is the letter to uh, Laodicea. But Laodicea and Colossae were also instructed to exchange letters, so they're relevant, transcends their local application. And Epaphras is called a fellow prisoner, title given to Archicus, and so he, uh, uh, that means he may have voluntarily chose to be with Paul in prison. We don't know what that, all that, that fully implies. And so it seems that he willingly accompanied Paul. And uh, so they, both uh, Epaphras and Aristarchus are there to comfort Paul and are referenced at the close of the letter. And so, so these special heresies are what we're going to deal with. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here before we get in the letter to talk a little bit about these peculiar heresies. And these heresies we're going to talk about are called Gnosticism, Gnostics. Now that's a strange label because Gnosticism really emerges about two centuries later, but we see the roots of it here. 
So we're indulging a little bit, like most scholars do, in somewhat of an anachronism, because the, the, the term Gnostics really emerges subsequent to this time period, but its roots are here. So uh, understand there's a, that, that distinction. Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And uh, they uh, declared themselves in the know, if you will. Uh, of the deep things of God. And they felt that they were a sort of a spiritual aristocracy. They were the insiders. They had truth that you really weren't ready for yet, presumably. And these pretensions are very similar to groups today of various kinds. The New Age kind of thing is fluent. The Gnostics. The Epistle of Colossians is going to deal with all of this by emphasizing Christ's preeminence. That term preeminence is going to have very special meaning before we through. It's a response to the Gnostics. Again, the word Greek, gnosis, which means knowledge, and uh, agnostic, that is a coined term by Huxley, means without knowledge. It's a Greek term. And if you're at a party, well, I'm an agnostic. You hear people sort of take pride in the fact that they, you can't really know, so I'm an agnostic. Do you know what the Latin equivalent of that is? Ignoramus. That doesn't work as well at parties. Well, I'm an ignoramus. It doesn't quite work, you know. But it's the same word, actually. And of course, uh, the Gnostics were a um, mixture of mysticism, Eastern speculations, and Jewish legalism. That's a strange mix. It's a very strange mix. But uh, we'll, un- we'll get into all of that before the study's over. And it's surprisingly contemporary today in some surpri- very surprising ways. Alexandria, by the way, was one of the major headquarters and it's for that reason that the Alexandrian Code Texas, some of the documents we have mo- done our modern translations from are documents that have been doctored by the Gnostics, by the way. That's one reason uh, the popularity of the modern translations has waned a little bit and people are going back to Textus Receptus in the translation world. But anyway, the uh, Eastern speculations plus mysticism. What we're going to be guarding against as we go through there is man-made traditions and philosophy. And we're going to, we, we won't play favorites. We'll have something to offend everyone. We'll, we'll spread that around quite evenly. The idea that matter was evil was an idea that the Gnostics embraced. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 